to the untold hour. It's Jess. I'm back temporarily, but I'm back for at least what? Three, four weeks, maybe probably three. Anyway, uh, I've been on the road. I'm sure obviously all of you know that. Thank you for sticking with the podcast, uh, making Bowser's life as stressless as possible. I know that's a lie. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm just happy to be home, happy to be talking to you guys again, happy to be seeing Aristotle's face via Zoom, just freaking happy. Uh, I think you guys are going to like this upcoming season a lot. We are, we, oh, I can't give too much away, but I will say now that COVID restrictions are lifting in some areas, we are looking to potentially do more overseas stuff. Whether that actually pans out or not, I don't know yet because it's kind of like everybody's info and rules are changing. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Fingers crossed we get to. I'd like to get back uh, back over the, the pond, so to speak. But um, in the meantime, we've been uh, doing some great stuff on the road here in the U.S. again. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy this upcoming season. And I hope you guys really liked the last season of Expedition X. Um, it's uh, the one of my favorite episodes, I think, was our finale, actually. The USO episodes off of Catalina. Uh, that one actually scared the shit out of me. So uh, I highly recommend you check it out if you haven't. Um, I don't know if they're doing reruns on Discovery Channel proper. I assume that they are. Uh, but if you do have Discovery Plus, you should be able to watch them on there. Or I think maybe... Um, Maybe, uh, what's the streaming service? Why am I blanking? Not Amazon Prime. What's the other one? Netflix. No, Amazon Prime. I think it's Amazon Prime. Anyway, just do a search. You'll find us. Uh, last episode, like I said, um, really kind of freaked me out. And ooh boy, again, can't give too much away, but we have an episode coming up in this next season where, oh my gosh, the place we were at, legit haunted. Like, legit, legit haunted. I can't wait to be able to give you guys the details on these things and also just, like, tell you what it's like to be uh, on the road and try and link all this stuff together because it's just, like, I feel like if you don't really know how TV is made, and that's not an insult, that's just you, why would you know? Um, it's easy to... It's it's just easy to kind of like misconstrue or misunderstand like the 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 format that we have to go through. So I'm just um I just I can't wait till the next season occurs so that we can kind of chat about it a little bit more and I can let you guys understand like what what we're up against on the road because I've I have been seeing some posts and I'm just like yeah it's not quite how that works so uh uh but you know I mean how are you supposed to know because you know. You don't know what you don't know. So I don't really know where I'm going with that. Needless to say, I just, I'm glad to be talking to some other people right now, I guess is why I'm just chattering on. Um, 
But let's get into the untold hour. That's why we're here. So uh, on the road, what I've been doing is anytime I see a topic come up that I'm kind of curious about, I make a note about it so that I can come back to it and talk to you guys about it on the podcast. And so one night late after like some 14-hour day uh, sweating my life away in 103-degree weather, I was scrolling murders on the internet, as one does in my hotel room, and I came across this... uh, a round of murders that I hadn't ever heard about before. Uh, Anybody listening from the UK, you might be familiar with this, but uh, it's called the Brides and the Bath Murders. And, uh, you know, it's it's a pretty straightforward murder. It's something that you'd have heard on on like Dateline or Forensic Files, but it happened in the early 1900s, which just goes to show you people are always the same. I think that's what this current generation, um, and this includes me in that, needs to remember on occasion is that you know what people are always just people like things like everything just consistently repeats itself human disposition uh good or bad pretty much sticks you know to the same uphill sisyphean tasks as we always do and murders they happen you know there's just as many awful gruesome murders back in the good old days as there are now so that actually kind of helps me get through life because I sit there and I think, nah, it's not bad. It's just a different time. And I just happen to be stuck in this one. So with that really uplifting Instagrammy vibe, let's move on to the brides and the bath murders. Uh, Aristotle, feel free to jump in anytime you want and interrupt me because um, if TikTok has shown me anything, it's that I have ADHD. And uh, I will never not start ta- stop talking and or interrupting anyone else unless they do it to me first. <laughs> I mean, that's totally fine with me because I'm always, I'm always <laughs> I'll, I'll stand back. I'll wait. I'll wait my turn. <laughs> See, I am uh, I'm, I like like legit TikTok has me convinced that I have ADHD, which, you know, makes me think like, Jess, come on now. Like you're getting your health information, your mental health information from TikTok. And I'm like, well, but the other side of me is like, well, no, you're not getting it from them. You're just getting like, maybe this is an option that you should look into because these are items that you have struggled with your entire life. I also wouldn't say you're getting it from TikTok, but it would depend on who you're getting it from because I, of course, anyone can dress up like a doctor, but I do love that there are like legitimate doctors on there. Yeah, that's true. Here's some things you should know really quick. Like, yeah. Oh. And I'm and they're like, put a finger up if and I'm or put a finger down if you are. And I'm like, down, 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 down. Oh <laughs> shit. <laughs> so yeah, my TikTok algorithm is algorithm is really unique. It's like witch talk. Mm. It's uh a, a mental health ADHD talk. It's um non-binary house cleaning talk. And uh Huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> TikTok's teaching me a lot about myself. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I, maybe I should be exploring some things in my life. But anyway, moving on. The Brides and the Bath Murders. So like I said, this happened in the early 1900s. There were a series of brutal murders in England, which uh, not only was widely talked about due to the brutality, but also because it was one of the first major cases to make a significant impact within the development and history of forensic uh, pathology. So the road leading to the brides and the bath murders actually began as far back as 1872 with the birth of George Joseph Smith 
in Bethnal Green, England. So George was the son of an insurance agent. Uh, note that because it will come into play a lot later on in this story. And it's hard to say if he had an easy beginning as a childhood or not. Uh, I, I couldn't quite tell if he was the problem or if the family was the problem, but he had problems at some point and was sent to a reformatory by the age of nine. And then later on, he also got picked up at the, by the cops for swindling and theft after persuading a woman to steal from her employers. And then he took the money from her and used it to establish a baker's shop in Leicester. Um, he ended up serving 12 months for that crime. So note the two key points of that introduction are that He's familiar with insurance because of his parents, and he's good at getting women to give him their money. That's that's an that seems like a lot of steps to persuade someone to steal from their boss and then to also steal it then from them. Like it's one thing to persuade someone to give you their money, mm -hmm. like. I want you to take your boss's money. <laughs> well, yeah. So he's, yeah, that's kind of, well, yeah. I think that's what gives him a taste of being able to convince these women mm. to do things for him that, you know, are illegal and that they don't maybe want to do, but for some reason they he got he's got them convinced. He's like the OG... Uh, but evil version of dirty, rotten scoundrels, right? Like he uses his, you know, I he uses his charm, he, his good looks. I don't know. I guess it's depending on your point of view, but I don't know if he, you know, I don't know what his criteria for picking out his victims were mm -hmm. per se, because I had to kind of, I wouldn't say do a rush job on this, but I didn't get to do as much of a deep dive as I wanted just because I'm still kind of recovering from uh, my previous workload. So I wasn't able to kind of, I wasn't able to discover how he chose his female victims as far as being able to uh, manipulate them and that they would be good targets. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. I highly recommend that if the story interests you, you do more research on it. Um, but yeah, he, he, he ended up, developing a really unique um you know char charming approach i guess so so yes yeah, so where we ended up was that he had uh he took that woman's money and used it to establish a baker's shop in Leicester, and then he ended up serving 12 months for that crime so by 1896 george who's you know an adult now is now under the alias george oliver love and he marries a carolyn beatrice thornhill this is technically his only legal marriage he does end up marrying a bunch of other women uh, uh bigamously and he starts that about a year after his marriage to carolyn but carolyn's is legit like he actually goes through the proper protocols Carolyn and George then move to London, where Carolyn starts working as a maid for various employers, all the while stealing petty items and money from them for her husband. So he's still back on that game. Carolyn's luck eventually runs out, and she gets apprehended for stealing while they're in Worthing, Sussex. She's sentenced to 12 months behind bars, and then after serving her time, she gets out and she's like, this motherfucker, it was actually all him. It wasn't me. Like, yes, I did the crime. I served my time. But also, fuck this guy. He He's the mastermind behind this. He manipulated me into it. Based on her accusations, 
The police are like, hell yeah, we'll snag him. George gets picked up and he gets imprisoned for two years starting in January of 1901. He serves his time. He gets out of jail and he leaves England for Canada. And then I'm not sure what he does in Canada, but eventually he he gets back with his other quote unquote wife, the one that he bigamously married a year after marrying Carolyn. Uh, He goes back to her. He com- he promptly clears out her savings and then ditches and takes off. So now he's got her money, and it's kind of the last you ever really, or at least that I was able to find of her. June of 1908, he now marries, quote-unquote marries. I'm going to say marries from now on, but just know that it's not really Mary. Carol- Carolyn's the only actual, like, by-law legal marriage. All these other women are bigamously married, unbeknownst to them. Does that mean, like... He proposed, but never like signed a paper. Or I think, yeah, I think it's he proposes. They accept. They think they're the only one. They don't know of his background. They maybe probably even go through a marriage ceremony of some sort, but no f- paperwork is filed or properly turned in or any of that jazz. Mm. So, um, so uh, you know, but also like whatever, like. <laughs> you know yeah as you get older and as you get married are married for as long as i am you realize that's eh, just paper like it's really between you guys but that's a whole separate ball of wax <laughs> for a separate conversation however the bigamist thing if they're not into it you maybe shouldn't do that yeah and by maybe i mean absolutely not yeah <laughs> like that's that's the big problem i have with this is that none of these women had any idea they thought they were the only ones they thought they were like on the tried and true path this man loved them and he is obviously full of shit I, so oh yeah i feel like it'll it'll come up but just already right off the bat like this feels uh like what crimson peak may have been based off of Spoil- oh my god in crimson peak <laughs> not but that's the thing so it's so funny you bring that up because i actually have like a few like uh ps tabs at the end of this thing that i i'm reading off of for you guys but um it shows up subtly like this whole case subtly shows up in pop culture like old school pop culture mystery stuff like forever yeah i mean it it kind of becomes the platform of your traditional mystery murder story yeah because like this it almost it sounds so familiar and that it's kind of like the story you see in movies but i've never I realize now, like, I've never actually heard that happen in real life. And mm-hmm. now, was this a common thing or was this just this one man that? <laughs> well, I, you know, I guess I hate to say it like this, but the amount of forensic files and stuff that I've ever watched killing your spouse. Yeah, it's a common thing. Or it's like, you know, the first guy you or the first, I guess, person you look at when you're investigating a murder is the husband or wife. Right. Yeah. But the thing in particular about this is how he jumps from one to another and his way of murdering them. And I will I'm going to bring that up later. So I'll point that out to you and our audience when we get there, because you are you are so on the money right now. Perfect. perfect. Yeah. Way to way to look ahead. I love it. So um, where were we? OK, so, yes, he uh, he ditches out. He, he steals all his previous wife's money, quote unquote wife, uh, the one that think she's married but isn't the one that got married a year after carolyn 
and then he ditches her. And then in June of 1908, George marries a widow by the name of Florence Wilson, promptly leaves her roughly about a month later in July, but not before stealing 30 pounds. Now, please forgive me, I'm bad with math, which I think is roughly 3,000 pounds or $4,189 US nowadays. He steals that from her and then sells all of her personal items from their home in Camden, London, and bounces. So she is left with literally nothing. Like, even sells her items. Like, what a dick. Anyway, so he bounces after stealing her stuff. He then takes off again and heads to Bristol, where he mar- he's already married by July 30th, <laughs> so only a few weeks later, to an Edith Peglar, or Peglar, P-E-G-L-A-R. I'm going to call her Peglar. With Peglar, George kind of has a slightly different MO, and I'm not really sure how her story ends up. He would leave her for months at a time, claiming that he was on business trips to sell antiques, and in between his other marriages, which I think is where he would go, he would kill those women or just take their money. Not all of them were murdered. And then he would continuously return to Peglar with the money, So she was the one kind of reaping the benefits of his quote-unquote jobs. And I think he might have actually loved this one. I don't know, man. Like, like when I say loved this one, I'm saying that very cautiously and specifically in regards to how he treated the rest of the women. Yeah, because we're just a favorite. Maybe, yeah, could have been a, yeah, 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 favorite is, yeah. By love, yes, also maybe just a favorite. Or at least a, yeah. Or kept her around for some reason. Or I mean, she could have just been the storage containment for all of his goods, you know? I, you got to settle somewhere, right? Like, you got to always have a base of operations. Yeah. Somewhere. So maybe she was his base of operations. I don't know. Either way, she manages to make it out alive. She's the one that he keeps coming back to and bringing money home to. Uh, it doesn't really, what the resource I was looking at uh, doesn't really go above and beyond that. And I wasn't able to check out anymore, but that's kind of the last time her name comes up. So I'm assuming she made it. Because, I mean, my first thought was, did she know? <laughs> Uh, my, I don't think any of the, I truly don't think any of these women had any idea except for like Carolyn in the beginning. Cause he's the one that went to her and was like, Hey, I need you to help me steal this money from your employers. She yeah. definitely was in on it. I think from that point on, he realized he can get caught cause she's the one that turned him in. If he brings any of these women into his schemes. And from that point on, he's a, he's a solo artist, you know, like he's running by himself. He's not, these women have no clue. And then I think because of that, he realizes that they're a better target than other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes. So that's what happens with Peglar. Then in October of 1909, George marries Sarah Freeman under a new alias, George Rose Smith. And as with his other wives, with possibly the exception of Peglar, he clears out Sarah's savings and sold her war bonds 
stealing from her a total of 400 pounds. So after wiping Sarah out, he then moves on to a Bessie Mundy and an Alice Burnham. Remember those names. They're the important ones. And then in September of 1914, he marries an Alice Reed under a different alias, Charles Oliver James. So in total, between the years of 1908 and 1914, George was involved in seven bigamous marriages. And in most of those marriages, he stuck to his MO of clearing out their savings, selling their belongings, and then leaving them. All right, so now we're moving on to the murders, the deaths. So the dates on here were a little screwy for me. Some of them didn't really make sense in regards to what I considered the timeline. So I'm going to keep it somewhat vague. Feel free to explore on your own per usual. However, this is how I kind of saw it playing out based on what I was reading. So by January of 1915, things begin to go downhill for George and relatively fast. There's a detective inspector, Arthur Neal, who receives a letter from a Joseph Crossley. Crossley is the owner of a boarding house in Blackpool, Lancashire. I think I said that correctly. Pardon me if I did not. Included with the letter that Crossley sent to the detective were uh, two newspaper clippings. So the first one detailed the death of a Margaret Elizabeth Lloyd, who was 38 years old and who died in her lodgings in Highgate by drowning in her bathtub. Her body had been found by her husband, John Lloyd, and their landlady. The second newspaper clipping was the reported coroner's inquest dated December 13th of 1913 from Blackpool. Now, this report was in regards to an Alice Smith, whose maiden name was Alice Burnham. Remember her? She was, uh, she was one of the women who married him along with Bessie Mundy after wiping out Sarah. So that was her so that's her maiden name, but her married name is Alice Smith. She also died suddenly in her bathtub. She'd been found by her husband George Smith. Alice didn't have much, you know, but she had worked very hard and was very diligent about saving her money, and so she had a relatively decent savings account. And in addition to that, her husband George Smith had also taken out a life insurance policy on her worth up to 5,000 pounds, which I think, all of my math, roughly equates to $6,984 uh, US. Joseph Crossley, who was the landlord of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, sent the letter and the clippings to the detective Neil on behalf of his own wife, Crossley's wife. Uh, she was nervous about this. And Mr. Charles Burnham, who I think maybe was a brother or an uncle or some relation to. Um, to Alice, uh, due to the striking similarities of the cases, and they were intent on putting pressure on the police to start investigating the matter. So Detective Neal goes to the boarding house where the Lloyds had lodged and inspects the area, and he has his doubts almost immediately about Mrs. Margaret Lloyd being able to be drowned in such a small tub, especially because the tub was only three quarters full with water at the time of her death. So the coroner, a Dr. Bates, uh, basically disappoints Detective Neal, not on purpose, but he says that all that he noticed was a slight bruise, abo bruise above the elbow. So there's no additional signs of violence pointing to a murder, you know? Like, there's no struggle. There's nothing. There's no scratch marks. Like, if you were to drown somebody and hold their head underwater, 
you would think they would fight to get out and you'd end up with scratch marks or bruises or they would have bruises because they're fighting back trying to get out and you're trying to push them down. There mm. is none of that. Like, absolutely none. Like, just this tiny, tiny oh. bruise above her elbow, which she could have got at any given moment. Like, heck, I just walked into a wall yesterday. Like, it, like, I, you know, <laughs> it's just like, it. this shit happens. So you can't really use that as a potential evidence. And she legitimately drowned. Like, they found water in her lungs. She drowned. Uh, it wasn't a ton, which seemed a little weird, but she definitely drowned. And they found her in the tub, right? They what, found her body in the tub. Wouldn't that happen if you just left a body in a tub? I, I guess I don't know that for sure, but wouldn't the water uh, eventually get into the lungs? No, I don't. I mean, I suppose it could trickle in there. I'm assuming there's a there's a way for coroners to tell if it is breathed in mm. versus like leaks Just, in. Yeah. You know, I honestly, I truly don't know. My guess is there's ways to tell, like because mm. there's probably, um, I don't know, broken capillaries in the lungs or something because of the water coming in violently versus slowly flowing in and all this other stuff. That actually is a good question, though, because it kind of plays into how they solve the mystery later. A little bit. Like you're like you're like so close to hitting the bullseye on so many of these. These are great questions. Um so despite the lack of evidence on the body, Detective Neal was able to unearth that a will had been made on the 18th, which uh and signed and turned in three hours before the death of Mrs. Margaret Lloyd, leaving everything to her husband as a sole beneficiary. And she had also withdrawn all of her savings that same day. So she writes so he takes out a life insurance policy on her shortly before her death. She writes a will out three hours before she dies, leaving everything to him. And she withdraws all of her savings that same exact day. I mean, come on. But they got to prove it, right? Yeah. I know. So Dr. Bates then contacts Detective Neal. Remember, Dr. Bates is the coroner on this about an inquiry from the Yorkshire Insurance Company regarding Mrs. Lloyd's death. So apparently, on top of all this other stuff, three days before her death, she takes out an additional life insurance policy on herself for 700 pounds and with her husband again signed off as the sole beneficiary. So now he has an insurance policy on her. She took one out on herself. She removes all of her money the day that she dies out of her savings account, and she writes a will three days beforehand, leaving everything to him. I mean, oh my gosh. But it's all circumstantial. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's really, it's like, it all is like, hey, red flag, red flag, red flag. But also like, she's got literally no signs of trauma on her body at all. Um. It's it's just just so weird. This also feels like the thing that is now a history lesson for insurance people to be like, and this is why we do this. <laughs> yes, exactly. So Detective Neal then asked Dr. Bates to delay his response to the insurance company, giving him time to request additional information on the Smith case from the Blackpool police. That's the other article that was sent to him about like these two uh, deaths seem really suspicious. So as with the Lloyd case, Neil finds out that Mrs. Smith had also taken out a life insurance policy on herself, naming her husband the sole beneficiary. And in addition, the couple only took up their residence at the boarding house in Blackpool after Mr. Smith had inspected the bathtub and approved it. 
that is why they moved into that location is because it had a, a, a type of bathtub that he was looking for. So after receiving this information from the Blackpool Police Department, Detective Neal then gives Dr. Bates, the coroner, the go-ahead to issue a positive response to the insurance company handling the Lloyd case. His hopes are that at some point, the suspect is going to have to show up to his lawyers to collect the insurance payoff, and that's when Detective Neal will approach him, question him, and potentially detain him. And sure enough, sure as shit, that's exactly what happens. So a short time later in February, a man matching the Lloyd Smith description shows up for the cash. Detective Neal approaches him and asks him if he is Mr. Lloyd. He answers, yeah. And then the detective asks him if he's also George Smith. And at first, the suspect flips out, denies it vehemently, is a total, like, go fuck yourself to this <laughs> detective. But then, you know, the detective's a detective. He's not putting up with this shit. And he knows. He knows that this is his guy. He just needs to prove it. And so, like, keeps on putting the pressure on. So eventually, George Smith, or George, yeah, George. We'll just call him George because I'm losing track of his last names. George breaks down, admits that, he, yes, he is also Mr. Smith, and uh, and uh, he's uh, then apprehended and charged with bigamy and the suspicion of murder. So, pathologist Bernard Spilbury was then brought in to help determine exactly how the women died, because now they know, okay, it wasn't just a drowning, so the coroner's, like, semi-off the hook. Like, he's still involved, and Spilberry is brought in more as an advisor, but, you know, they just, they start working together. Like, the coroner did nothing wrong. By all intents and purposes, that's exact. like, he followed protocol, and his assessment was correct based on what he saw. But now we're getting into, like, some fucked up waters. So now they're like, we're gonna step this up a notch, and we're bringing in the pathologist. Also gotta acknowledge the pun fucked up waters oh yeah <laughs> thank you for pointing that out i didn't even realize i did that but yes absolutely completely fucked up um so now we've got like two experts on the case you know uh one really really good expert so they exhume margaret lloyd's body and re-examine it and it's confirmed that she had died by drowning uh, and the other flip side to this, which is frustrating the shit after, out of Detective Neal, is that no additional evidence is discovered regarding her death, uh, as in via drowning by violence. You know, like, there's no bruise marks, there's no marks, there's nothing. They reconfirm the fact that she had the small elbow bruise. There's some micro tears here and there on her body, but you could have gotten that, I mean, shit. You get that anywhere. Like, you get that on wearing your face masks sometimes, you know? Walking around. Like, walking around like scratching yourself with your own fingernail like that just shit that just happens so but they have to acknowledge it in the report and they do but it's not enough it's not even close to enough to like implicate anybody um however the one thing that is noticed that is really weird is that it seems like she died immediately almost as if she had suffered a stroke which is strange, which also accounts for why there's so little water in her lungs, despite like, yes, she did drown, but she wasn't full of water. It was just a little bit. And it's probably because she stopped breathing really quickly after she went under the water. Right? So keep that uh -huh. in mind. Because of this, because of this weird, like, almost immediate death, they start thinking, well, maybe poison is a possibility. And so they order a bunch of tests to detect any signs of poison, which all eventually come back negative. There's no poison. So they're just like, what the actual fuck? The entire time I kept thinking, like, it, it must be poison. It's got to be poison, mm -hmm. right? It's not Damn. fucking poison. I thought that too. But Damn. no, it's not poison. 
So Poison's out. So now they're just like, what? Like, what is this? Like, what the? Okay. So they experiment by using the same bathtub that Mrs. Lloyd died in, uh, and they start conducting their own experiments in there. Like, how could this have possibly happened? Like, how is there, how, this thing is so small. What happened with this woman? Like, how would she possibly drown in this? Around this same time, word starts to leak out through the media that, yes, there's been multiple murders. There's a serial killer kind of on the loose, although he seems to be, it's, you know, like it's not like Jack the Ripper where he's going after everybody. This person, like it's specifically his wives. Uh, and so the public starts hearing accounts of the brides in the bathtub. So now the media, like now the, now the public's being brought in. Not that that changes anything to do with this, just to show you, like it starts becoming a big case. And was, I forgot, was George wasn't detained, right? He just. George is current. George, I'm assuming is currently detained because he's been Uh, charged with bigamy and suspicion of murder. Yeah. So he's definitely in for bigamy, but he's also being investigated for suspicion of murder. So he's, yeah, he's in jail. Um, during this time, a third victim begins to surface. So word gets around. So more people are like, "Uh, this seems odd. So a third victim kind of begins to surface. Reports come in that a Henry Williams had rented a house for himself and his wife, Beatrice, Bessie, remember Bessie, Mundy. He then rented a bathtub several weeks later. And in addition, he took his wife to a local doctor under the guise of saying that she was suffering from epileptic seizures that she said she didn't remember. All she remembers is occasionally having headaches. But he's saying, yeah, but you forget you end up having a seizure. And then the only thing you remember next is coming too. And she's like, oh, shit, really? And he's like, yeah, so I got to take you to the doctor. So he does that. So now he's got... And he, it's so, it's, it's actually pretty, God, I hate to say smart, but it's pretty, um, it's, it's pretty smart in the sense that he needs, he needs verification that there's a reason for what's going to happen next. Yeah. But what that is the, it's, it's, this is the only time I feel like I could get this term right, but that is the ultimate gaslighting. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. Next Big time. Next level, on top of, and I think the thing to me that seems smart, is that he's going after a doctor, right? So if this doctor knows about, people just don't question doctors. I mean, I think they probably do now more than maybe they did back then. But, you know, back then, your doctor's your doctor. I also- or let, I guess maybe, but let me put it this way, because that's the whole back then that we had a conversation about earlier at the start. The, the they TikTok. probably, <laughs> yeah, they probably do question their doctors but oh shoot, I lost my train of thought. But um, but like like me, it took me a long time to get to that point mm-hmm. growing up because you are just told as a child to listen to your doctor. Your doctor is a doctor for a reason. Mm-hmm. He's or she is smart. They know more than you. Like that kind of shit, right? And it yeah. takes a long time to learn to shake that off. So who's to say that, you know, he didn't pick somebody that wouldn't question the doctor, uh, most assuming that most people will automatically respect a doctor just by the way that they have been kind of brainwashed to do so as children. And it, they only start questioning things when push comes to shove. You just got to right? put a doctor's coat on or some scrubs and you are trustworthy. <laughs> right. Right. Kind of. Kind of. It's like that. It, like not to say you can't get beyond that when you meet them, but like there's always that first instinct 
of, oh, this guy's a doctor. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, yes, that's what I meant by that. So, uh, on July 12th of 1912, the doctor then gets awakened by Williams, who declares that his wife is having another fit. So, the doctor goes over, checks on her, she seems okay, and he says, okay, I'll come back in the morning and check on her again. So, the morning comes, and the doctor, you know, I don't know, is about to get ready to leave or something, or maybe he does, but he gets informed by Williams when he runs into him that his wife had actually died later that night due to drowning in the tub. The doctor goes over. He finds and looks at Bessie's body in the tub and with her head under her under the water and her legs stretched out over the side of the tub. There are no additional signs of violence. Uh, so he attributes the death to accidental drowning due to an epileptic seizure. The inquest jury, here's the case, assigns, uh, assigns the 2,579 pounds as stipulated in Bessie's will to her husband, which... That will had been changed five days before her death. At her autopsy, similar findings were made to that of Mrs. Lloyd. Drowning in a tub, sudden death, no poison detective, detected, no signs of violence. It's like the same exact autopsy. During this time, Detective Neal was also able to establish that Henry Williams was also John Lloyd and was also George Smith. I don't know how he did it, but he was able to link that these three people were all the same. So all of this is starting to fall apart. This house of cards is starting to fall apart. I, I, I also I was like, why is he, you would think you'd, you'd be a, a little more, um, smarter about like, I'm going to wait. I'll yeah. we'll update the will. And then I will wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's a, well, that's yeah. the greed, right? Like yeah. these are almost for the time perfect murders like it's not like the you know like he can't he he can stay in england it's not like he's going overseas i mean he went to canada once but it's not like he's going far to like lose like the, like the trace lose the trail like trail. Ditch the tra- yeah he's sticking around town practically like it and and you know he set this up relatively well. Like, hey, this is my wife. I'm taking her to the doctor because she suffers from epileptic seizures. She had a seizure in the bathtub and accidentally drowned. But yeah, it's always the greed that gets him because he can't be patient. Mm-hmm. Like he has to have like the fact that he waits like three days, five days, four days. And then like same day, like just what, dude? Like. You're so not good, but you're so methodic up to a certain point, and then it you you it falls apart for you. Like you can't yeah. handle the weight. It's just very interesting. Yeah, like that. That's the thing. Um. So yeah. So all this goes on. All this is going on. A third victim starting to appear that matches the kind of uh, criteria of the other victims, and at the same time, the detective is able to establish that all these different aliases belong to the same guy. Evidence begins to pile up, and Detective Neal, however, is still puzzling over the actual cause of death. He knows these women are being murdered, but there's no way to figure out how. After examining the tubs and looking through the autopsies, it's determined that the most likely scenario, and he kind of comes up with this, and then they test it, and it turns out to be true, that the most likely scenario is that while his wives were in the tub, George would grab them by their feet and yank them out of the tub, like yank the feet up. 
so that the women's heads would slide under the water and they would gasp in surprise. And in because of the gasp, the shock of the water entering their nose and their throat would cause the women to lose consciousness, thus explaining the sudden cause of death via drowning and the lack of any additional signs of violence. Because he's not holding them down. He's, he's lifting them up. Yeah. And they're sliding into the tub. And then they accident and they knock themselves out because they breathe in so much water because they're so sh surprised and shocked that then they just naturally drown on their own. But that's also why there's only a little bit of water in their lungs because all they intake before passing out and dying is whatever they gasped in in the first place. Mm -hmm. And maybe a little bit afterwards until they actually stop breathing. Wow. Right? And so this kind of brings up the pop culture references that we were talking about earlier because that exact scenario was used in an Agatha Christie novel. Mm. Like she, I can't remember if it was a Miss Marple or Poirot, but there is a scene where somebody pulls the feet out of uh, someone in the bathtub, drowning them and making it look like it was accidental. It's wow. amazing. It's like, whoa, like this truly becomes the base line for pop culture murder mysteries at the time. It's yeah. like, this is all Knives Out. This is freaking Agatha Christie. <laughs> this is, you know, Sherlock Holmesy. This is all of it. So, uh, so this is Detective Neal's theory, and he tests it out with a woman diver in a tub and notes that her reaction matches up almost exactly with what was discovered in the autopsies of Mrs. Lloyd, Smith, and Williams and their causes of death. So he's got his guy, right? I mean, as like, I feel like maybe in these days, like you would mean potentially more than that, but as like to prove that that's how they died. Yeah. But... All of it together, the insurance, the timing, and now the tub cases, I f like they, he definitely has enough to roll the dice on it, right? Yeah. I mean, it seems pretty clear. Yeah. But, yeah, and from us from hindsight, it's still, I still can't believe, that's, that seems almost more cold than holding someone down. Yeah, what a dick move, am I right? Like, to, it's just so... In, not that this is the, this is a weird way to say it, but it's so ingenuine. Yeah. Like it's like so tricky, so passionless. deceitful. Which, yeah, passionless. I mean, not that, you know, it, it feels wrong to say that there's passion in it, but yeah, I, I'd imagine in that situation, you're just holding the feet watching this happen. Yeah, uh, and you don't and give a shit. And your poor wife, who probably loves you, yeah, is... Not only dying, but also heartbreak at the same, like, what, why is he doing, like, it's just the whole thing when you really think about the details of what might have gone through someone's mind that was having this done to them. It's just heartbreaking, yeah. like, on multiple levels. So, and like, oh, God, yeah. It's just, oh, it, it actually, yeah, I agree with you completely. It, and it actually makes me angry. Like, what a chicken shit way to go about doing doing this and living your life at the expense of others. So anyway, um, so on February 15th, uh, 
1915, George Joseph Smith, his actual name, is arrested and formally charged with the murders of Bessie Williams, Alice Smith, and Margaret Lloyd. His trial begins on June 22nd, and then by July 1st, kind of, you know, they come to a decision, and it only takes the jury 20 minutes to determine his guilt and hit him with the death sentence. He appeals, his appeal is denied, and then he is hung at Maidstone Prison on August 13th, 1915, at the age of 43. So Detective Neal's use of system, uh, which means comparing other crimes with the one, comparing other crimes with the one a criminal is being tried for to help prove guilt. So like linking all these three crimes together in order to prove that he had done it and he's the murderer, set a precedent for later use within other trials. It's not necessarily uh, con- like a considered an open and shut way of solving things. It's, it's somewhat controversial. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it definitely establishes it. And also the forensic pathology that we had talked about with the experiments and whatnot, all of this, this is like a big, big case for that. Side note, which we kind of already talked about. I was telling you about, um, the fact that I know that Agatha Christie has used this in a, in a version of her stories for a type of murder, but the murder, this murder specifically, is mentioned in two of her other novels, A Caribbean Mystery and Murder on the Links, as well oh, as a wow. ton of other pop culture stuff that um, you can check out. And uh, and also is, an, in my opinion, like a major influence within crime writing at the time. So, so there writing. you have it. Yeah. There's, there's, there is the story of the uh, Brides in the Bath murders. Wow. And... Again, just to bring it up, it is so very Crimson Peak. So Uh, Crimson Peak. All of it. Just the whole damn thing. It's just, yeah. It's, I hate, it's a classic murder story. Yeah. Or at least it is now. Yeah, now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're far away from it now that we can, we can say that. Yeah. You know, like, yes, now. Back in the day, it was, uh, it was a very hot topic for sure. And uh, led to a lot of modern uh, changes in um, policing and investigations. So that is the Brides of the Bath murders. Uh, Normally, we would do uh, maybe listener stories or things, but I've got news for all of you guys. I have somehow managed to lock myself out of all of my (laughs) accounts. And I did that because my phone got dropped into a lake. And uh, I had to get it repaired, and my old backup is now fucking me up because I had uh, a a variety of security measures in place, and now I have no memory of what those passcodes are. (laughs) So if you don't see any updates on our Instagram page or anything like that anytime soon, that is why. Please give me time. I'm trying to fix it. Um, And in the meantime, if you do want listener stories, we still do have the Discord open, so feel free to send them over there. I'll be checking on that until I can figure out how to access my emails and our Instagram. (laughs) Oh, classic Jess. However, I do have some cool news. You ready to hear this? Oh, yeah. So I don't know, Aristotle, if you follow me on Insta or not, and that's not an accusatory uh, (laughs) question. It's fine if you don't. Um, But I posted yesterday that my, it's like, like, I hate to say it like this, but kind of fuck Bowser's backyard because now Jess's Ooh. backyard is oh. popping off. Yes, I did see this. Popping <laughs> off. All right, so uh, Untoldians, check it out. For years now, like legit years now, for like three years now, I have been trying to get the crows in our neighborhood 
to like me. It has been a, uh, you know, it's it's my own fault that this did not happen earlier because I wasn't consistent, but I'm also on, obviously on the road a lot. So I've been trying my best, but it wasn't working out. I don't know what happened, but right before I left for shooting this first pod, we had a young crow in the backyard, and I'm assuming it's young because it's relatively small. And I was like, I'm just going to go for it. And I had read that they really like dog food. So I grabbed some dog food pellets and I and I went outside and I made sure that it saw me. I was like, I made sure it didn't fly away, like looked at me and stuff. And I and it, but it was like, hi, this is going to be a long story, but it was like hiding up on the fence. And I was like, I kind of did this clicking sound at it so I could just like give it a distinct like, oh, that's that chick. Like this is her. Like they recognize faces, but also I figured adding a, a, a noise a to it, audible response to it would also be helpful to mm-hmm. just be like, oh, that's her. So I started doing this whole like thing because I had heard ravens doing that while we were at Catalina shooting. And I thought, well, ravens are pretty close to crows, so maybe it'll work. Needless to say, something worked because I threw the dog food out. It kind of flew away from me. It waited till I went back into the house. And then I watched it jump back down into the grass, eat the food, and fly away. I did this consistently. Well, as consistently as possible. I would wait until it would show up. And then I, if I noticed it, I would go outside. I'd toss it some food. I'd do my little click. And then it, I would go back in and it would fly, it would fly down, eat it and then fly away. Recently. So, so I shouldn't say recently. Uh, So then I have to go on the road, right? Like I've got a pretty decent amount of consistency happening in the backyard. um, But it's not this, this crow is not getting any closer to me, but he's not flying away far either. So I feel like we're on the right path. And then I get hit with having to go on the road again to shoot the next season. And I'm like, fuck. There goes my consistency, all of this goddamn work, and I just pissed it away, um, you know, for a good cause, for a job. But it's like, oh, man, I've been trying so hard. You had a routine going. I had a routine. I felt we were on the right path. I thought it was just a matter of time before this crow would be like, I want to be your best friend. So I uh, I tell, this actually kind of works out for me in the long run, though, because crows are very territorial and aggressive. And so I wanted to make sure that... Blair and my son also went out there and fed them, not only to keep the consistency up, but also so that the crows recognized them as a positive influence and didn't try to attack them or something if they went out in the backyard with me or by themselves. So I says like, listen, you don't have to do it every day, but if you notice the crows out there, just go outside, toss them some food, and then that's it. He's like, okay. So they've been doing that. They've been really good about it. So I get home on... One of the breaks, we had like two one week breaks. I get home on one of the breaks and I toss and sure enough, first day that I'm back, the crow's in the backyard and I go outside and he doesn't fly away. He stays in the backyard. I toss him the food and, uh, and he just lets me hang. Like I can't get close, but he's not taking off and then coming back later. So I'm like, ooh, <laughs> baby steps, but we're baby steps closer, right? Like yeah. it's getting there. So that takes a while. And then yesterday, I'm sitting on the couch. I look out in the backyard, and there's four fucking crows hanging out in the backyard. And I'm like, oh my God, it's on. It's happening. You've got a murder. <laughs> I've got a murder. Like, what is the what is the number specifically that you need to have a murder of crows? So I but but the thing that is ha- making me happy 
isn't the fact that I have necessarily the murder. It's the fact that this crow of mine has obviously spread news around the neighborhood (laughs) that this lady is where you want to go. Like this lady is where you want to hang out. You want to do, you want to do your eating over at this house and has now spread the word and brought a couple of his buds to my place. I can't find anything on a number. It just says a group of crows, which you've, You've got. <laughs> I've got a group of crows. I've got a murder. It's the perfect murder, which makes sense for this podcast. So, so yeah, so he brings them around. And it's so interesting because now I'm sitting there and I'm watching the dynamic between the crows, right? And you can kind of see how their hierarchy ranks. And this is going to sound really weird, but this is the impression I got. So I go outside. Of course, the three that are unfamiliar with me take off and like hang out. But they're hanging out by the fence. They're not flying away completely. So they obviously have heard that I'm trustworthy enough that they're not ditching, but they're not trusting. So they're hanging out on the fence and they're squawking up a storm because they're like pissed that I'm out there, but or maybe talking to my crow about like, listen, are you sure? She seems nuts, but are you sure? <laughs> and so I'm walking out and my crow's just like, guys, you're fucking idiots. She's fine. I'm going to hang out here in the grass. And he's just eating his fill. He's eating all the food because none of these other crows are like, like chill enough to come down. Mm-hmm. So I hang out there some more and I keep tossing food towards them just so that they can associate my face and this clicking noise with me and they realize that I'm not chasing their friend and everything's fine. And I had and the impression that I got is that my crow might be the idiot. Like my crow <laughs> might be the dumb one of the group, but that like flew and found like the 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 pot of gold and now the actual dominant crow cuz they got in a fight at one point. The dominant crow of the group came to check things out and then realized that, oh, this, this other one, this is getting free food. And he like, and is like pissed about it. Like jet, like mad that he didn't discover it. So it was like kind of fighting with my crow about it. But my crow is also like, whatever, buddy, go fuck yourself. I'm eating. I did this. Sorry. You didn't do it. Tough shit. Like I've just developed this whole freaking storyline for them. Wow. And uh, and uh, because of his intelligence in regards to being the one that found the pot of gold lady with the dog food, I, I feel like he's going to go up in rank. I-, I feel like he might not end up the dominant one, but he definitely proved that he's got, you know, he's got the wherewithal. Maybe that's why so, the, the dominant one was like, oh, no. Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> I recognize I think he- this is an opportunity for him that I don't want absolutely that's exactly how i read it like when i say my crow was the idiot i don't mean that i think he's an idiot i think the other crows think he's like down on the totem pole because he'd only ever come to my house by himself and i never saw him hanging out with any other groups of crows and so i'm wondering if he's like now he proved himself Mm -hmm. and they're like the dominant ones pissed about it do you have names for them um, I don't. Uh, my guy, I'm trying to come up with a name. I think I'm I'm debating Wyra from uh from um Schitt's Creek just because of the the movie that she was in, the Croning. I've not oh I've oh. I have not watched Schitt's Creek. I'm there's a whole there's a whole thing about crows and her character in Schitt's Creek. Mm. So I was thinking about calling him Moira, uh and assuming it's a him. I don't know, I can't tell. 
But uh, but I don't know about that one. That seems too basic. I feel like he needs something like ridiculously gothic or whatever. <laughs> so you know what? That can be our challenge for the Untoldians this week. If you guys are interested, I would love to hear your opinions on what names I should run with for my crow. Uh, but you'd have to put them over in Discord because otherwise I won't see them since I'm locked out of all my accounts. I know it's also kind of a... Uh, it de- it depends on y- your area uh, and mosquito-related things, but have you also tried leaving water out for them? I just left water out the other day um, because it was really hot, and I just figured I'd give them something to kind of like shiny to either play in or drink. Um, I didn't see them interacting with it at all. And my backyard does get those really awful tiny mosquitoes that just, Mm. you don't even know they're there. And then all of a sudden you walk in the house and you have like 20, like massive welts on you that last for two weeks. So, um, I've been suffering from that a lot and I don't necessarily want to perpetuate that with still water laying around. So, you know, if I see them back there and I feel like, uh, it's a hot day, I'll, I'll toss some extra water out, but I'm not leaving it out there for good. And I'm not going to bring a bed, a bird bath in because that'll just make it worse. But that's where we're at. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I did. I saw the the video of the crow that he you posted with him in the backyard. You know what we're going to start calling it instead of uh, Bowser's backyard, Crowbot's backyard. Crowbots. Crowbots backyard, guys. That's what we're running with. Crowbots. So yeah, I just wanted to give everybody, uh, but specifically a big shout out to Aristotle and Bowser for keeping this thing going while I've been on the road without me. I know it's a lot of work. I know Bowser also is stressed because he is gone today. He's scouting for his uh, his movie. Um, I just want to let you guys know, like, yeah, there's a lot of work involved in that movie. It will happen. It is happening. I have seen what he's working on, and I, I guarantee, like, I pr- like I promise you guys, like there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes before you get the finished product. And that's why you have a finished project is it's supposed to look easy. It's not supposed to look hard, but it is really hard mm-hmm. and it takes a long time, especially if you're a one man band uh, like he is. And uh, but he's making it happen. So props to him. Props to Aristotle. Um, I'm glad to be home. And uh, props to you guys for sticking with the podcast. Um, I'll probably do, I think, two or three more of these before I have to hit the road again. But I know. I'm, like Aristotle's got this look on his face. And I'm like, I know, dude. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Know, but I'm, then, I'm always happy once I'm with done, you and Bal. It's just more like when you guys are together. I'm like, yes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we need the team. We need the team back. For no other reason than to just be able to talk to each other. Honestly, I miss everybody really bad. Like, really bad. Like, I love my group that I'm with when I'm on the road, for sure. They're wonderful people. I consider them my friends. But, you know... We're us, man. We're the trifecta. We got a little, we got our own thing going. I miss it. So, um, so yeah. So that's kind of it. Um, again, feel free to send those listener stories in. Uh, just do it to Discord or anything else you want to say. I'm happy to read it on air as long as it's appropriate to uh, to uh, Discord until I can get myself unlocked. And uh, thanks for tuning in, you guys. Is it sad that I forgot what our sign off was? Uh, no, because I it, it was it's most it's Bowser's NPR voice, so that's why it's like yeah. Mm. Uh, do you want to try Bowser's voice, or do you want to? Well, I can't do with... his voice, but let yeah. me come come up with something. I mean, I guess kind of similar. Let me see. I've been working on a VO project lately, so let's see if I can drop a couple octaves. Yeah, man, I can't wait to talk to you guys about that one. That one's gonna be um, 
that one's going to be one very close to goth high school Jessica's <laughs> heart in a big, big way. All right. <clears throat> and with that being said, um, thank you for listening. Oh, that's not how it goes. <clears throat> thank you for listening to The Untold Hour. I'm Jessica Chobot, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. That was kind of shit, huh? Well, whatever. We'll work on it on the next episodes, guys. Bye. Untoldians, that is it for this episode of The Untold Hour. Thank you for joining us on this weird and wild ride into the bazaar. If you are interested in sharing your own story of the weird, send us your listener stories to theuntoldhourpod at gmail.com. Come join The Untold Hour Convo over on my Discord server and our Facebook group, and you can follow us on our socials, Instagram at The Untold Hour and at Untold Hour Pod on Twitter. Star Audio, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.